0: Welcome to Built to Go a Van Life podcast. I'm your host Jeff Wagg coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode one hundred and twenty four and we'll be talking about if it's time to ditch diesel. Is it seriously? Are we in a post diesel society? We will discuss. We're also going to talk about radiators, what they do and what you should do to them. A tale from the road involving hovercrafts and sculpins and yes, eels. And a product review of something I've been using for years and I don't even think about it because it works so well. Hello everyone. Welcome back. I am back from a whirlwind tour of the Northwest Northwest. I spent a few days in Seattle, and then I got on a ship, and I went up to Ketchikan, and then Juneau, and then Skagway, and then Victoria, British Columbia, and then went back to Seattle and took a train to Portland, and then went and saw all the waterfalls, and I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired. And uh, yeah, there was no episode last week because there was no way I was going to be able to do an episode last week. It was very, very busy. But I saw some wonderful things and had a great time with about 50 of my closest friends, and all in all, the thing was a complete success, and I'm sorry you couldn't be there with us. And maybe you were, and if you're listening to this, well, thank you. One thing I did on this trip was observe fuel prices. Fuel prices went up significantly from the start of this trip to the end of this trip, and I'm paying attention because this is a huge issue. If you look in all the forums and on Facebook and everything, fuel prices are what people are talking about now when it comes to vans. And it's kind of a shame because fuel's an expense. You know, it isn't part of the van life thing. But you may have noticed that diesel is significantly more expensive than gasoline. And so the question is, is this the final nail in the coffin of diesel engines? And I think it might be. And, and this is why. Diesel is being phased out of a lot of things in the U.S. See, there's a, there's a little problem with diesel fuel, and that is that no matter how clean you make it, it is still going to produce a lot of particulate matter. And that gets into the air, and it can cause lung problems and other health issues. It's basically a dirtier fuel than gasoline. And th- that's not a secret. We've known that for years. But it's also easier to make, so petroleum companies like it. And it does have some other advantages, such as it doesn't explode. <laughs> there's actually a federal law that all school buses must run on diesel rather than gasoline, because if there's an accident, Diesel will leak out, and yes, it can catch fire, but gasoline can vaporize and explode, and it's a much worse thing. In fact, uh, history buffs in World War II will notice the difference between what happened to gasoline tanks, such as the American tanks, and what happened to diesel tanks, such as the German tanks, when they were hit by artillery. Anyway, enough on that. So I am not down on diesel. Diesel is superior to gasoline in some ways. But those ways are being overwhelmed by the ways that gasoline is superior, and one of those is price. Right now, I am finding diesel to be $0.75 cents to a cents more per gallon across the country, and that wipes out any savings on gas mileage because diesel does give you better mileage per gallon. A gallon of diesel will give you more miles than a gallon of gasoline, depending on your engine. But a buck fifty? Yeah, that's going to wipe all that out. Another bad thing about diesels is that there are very few mechanics relative to gasoline engines. Diesel mechanics are a bit complicated and Depending on which engine you have, it might be very difficult to find one. I know a lot of folks with the old Freightliner and Dodge, especially Sprinters, are finding that their Dodge dealers don't have anyone who can work on them anymore. And when they roll into the Mercedes dealer, the company that made them originally, they're just turned away because, Yeah, that's not a Mercedes. Please remove it from my sight. And so they're stuck with independent diesel shops, which is fine and great and most likely better than the dealer, but they're hard to find, especially if you're in rural places. Also, maintenance for diesels is a lot more expensive. The oil change for my Sprinter is about $800. Now, let's flip back here. Why is it $800? Because you don't have to do it very often. In fact, with the new recall on my NCV3 Sprinter... My oil changes only happen every 20,000 miles, <laughs> so the savings there is, is actually pretty well in favor of the diesels. The biggest issue is that diesel is getting more expensive, and I still find it more difficult to find. Now, people who love diesels have told me, oh, it's easy to find, you just look for the stations that have the green prices and you find it there. But it's not that simple. If you are looking for gasoline, you can pretty much pull up at any pump and find gasoline. For diesel, a lot of these stations will have four, five, six aisles, and there's one single diesel pump. And if somebody parks there, gets gas, and then goes in and futzes around buying donuts or whatever for half an hour, you have no choice but to wait. Whereas with gas, you go to another pump. Also, I find that those pumps are often out of service. So it is much more difficult to find diesel. But I hear you diesel aficionados saying, what about all the other advantages of diesel? Well, there are some. Diesel engines, by their design, have a lot more torque. They're better at towing. If you take a diesel engine and a gasoline engine and load them up similarly in, you know similar displacements, let's have comparable engines here, and then go up a hill, the diesel's going to do a heck of a lot better than a gasoline engine. So if you're in a situation where towing is extremely important to you and performance is extremely important to you, you might still be in the diesel camp, but boy, you're going to pay a lot of money for that. Now, do I hate diesels? No, I just bought a tractor and that tractor was diesel because I think for the application of a tractor... Diesel makes sense. It's much easier for me to keep a diesel engine running at home than a gasoline engine because there's a lot less that can go wrong, and that's based on my personal experiences with gasoline tractors and diesel tractors. I've had far, far fewer problems with diesel tractors, (laughs) but they do cost a lot more. So, I've been all over the place with this. Let's summarize here. Are gasoline engines better than diesel engines? Not really, but the world we live in is better for gasoline engines than diesel engines, especially in a van, especially if you're going to be traveling a lot and may need repairs on the road, and especially if you're trying to save money right now where fuel costs are high. A lot of companies now are getting away from diesel. I believe Mercedes announced that there are not going to be any more diesel sprinters, which is kind of a shock because diesel sprinters were like the thing in the day. And talking to people in the industry, that is, people who drive professionally, They're shying away from diesel, and it's not because of the inherent properties of diesel, it's because of all the problems associated with the EPA requirements for diesel, which is a whole other thing, where you have to add DEF, where you have to have a diesel particulate filter that needs to be cleaned and sometimes goes wrong, Or the most odious thing is when you get the countdown of death, which the EPA has mandated in U.S. vehicles. And that is that if your vehicle detects that your DEF is low or there's a problem with your DPF or something else, it will start a countdown and you will have a limited number of startups before it kills your van. That's right. It kills the van so you can't drive it until you take it to a dealer. All this stuff added up. I think it's very clear now that if you're buying a van, look for gasoline. And folks, if you're trying to save money, if that's your big thing, if that's why you're doing this, look at something like an NV200, a Ford Transit Connect, a Promaster City, something along those lines. Because you're going to get mileages up in the 25 range, up in that area. And if you buy an old diesel van, your mileage might approach that, but wow, your other costs are going to kill anything else. So, yeah, I like diesels. I like the technology. I think they're good in very limited cases now. But overall, you can count me on Team Gas. And I don't really feel good saying that. Tech Talk. So, last week, or two weeks ago, actually, I talked about how suspensions work, and I got some pushback. I had someone say that basically I didn't know what I was talking about, and I shouldn't talk about this stuff unless I've properly researched it. Well, there is an argument to be had there. I am not a mechanic, I am not an engineer, I'm just a guy who likes vans. And I have worked on vehicles for years, and I am sharing with you some of the stuff I know, but I am absolutely not the end-all be-all of all knowledge about this stuff, far from it. The issue I have is that this person didn't then tell me what I got wrong. So I went back and looked at the things I said, and I think I was a little muddled on suspending the body over the frame versus suspending the wheels to the body, that kind of a thing. But overall, I couldn't find anything incorrect I said. So here's the deal. Take everything I say with a grain of salt, as you should with all people who are doing the things I'm doing, and if you do find something that you think I said wrong, even if you just are thinking that, I don't need proof, let me know and let's see if we can figure it out together. Let's be collaborative and see where I got things wrong, because I love being wrong. If I can be shown that I'm wrong... I then can be right, and I know more than when I started, and that is a glorious thing. So I am never, ever afraid to be wrong. That said, I'm going to leap headfirst into another thing, and this time it's radiators or cooling systems, which are very important things to understand in vehicles. And I'm going to do the same thing I did with the suspension part. So I may get some stuff wrong, and if I do, please let me know first off, there are two different kinds of cooling in vehicles, generally. There's air cooling and water cooling, they call it. You're going to find water cooling in nearly everything you drive, with the exception of Volkswagen vans. And, you know, if you're going to get real esoteric Corvair vans, but we don't see too many of those anymore. Those are air-cooled, and basically They don't really have a system, just air flows over the engine and cools it off and that's the end of it. So there's not a lot to deal with there. Water-cooled engines have some advantages in that the temperature is much more controllable and you can have things like, you know, heat. Yes your heating system inside your vehicle is associated with the heating system of the radiator which is to remove heat and some engineer many years ago said well what if we remove some of that heat and brought it in the vehicle when it was cold out and bing the heater was created but let's back up and talk about what exactly we're talking about here if you have a water-cooled van you have a radiator. Everybody knows where the radiator is generally. Now modern radiators have two caps. There is the pressure cap right on the radiator that you generally shouldn't touch. Then there's the overflow reservoir, which is a plastic container that has a cap on it and two lines max and min. For maintenance purposes, you want your antifreeze to reach the max line when the vehicle is hot. That's your goal. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can be a little over or a little under, but that's the line you're looking for. What you put in there... You should check your owner's manual on. There are differences in antifreeze. The traditional antifreeze to use in engines is ethylene glycol, but some need a mix. There's a thing called oat you have to worry about, so check your owner's manual for the proper kind of antifreeze. But what's it for, and why are we calling it antifreeze if it's a coolant? I don't understand. Alright, it is a coolant, But you also don't want it to freeze. (laughs) Why don't we just use water in the radiator? Because it would freeze and crack the radiator and possibly crack your engine, which is no good. So the fluid that is used is an antifreeze fluid. That is, it won't freeze. So that's why it's called that. It's a little confusing. Inside the radiator the fluid circulates through all these little channels and then there are fins in the radiator that air flows over and takes heat out of the fluid and puts it in the air and there is a fan that blows on this radiator that helps that process now in new vans that fan is electric And there's a thermostat that when the radiator reaches a certain temperature or the fluid in the radiator reaches a certain temperature, the fan turns on and blows air over the radiator and it cools things down. If you have a temperature gauge, you can actually watch this happen as the temperature gets up to, depends on the van, but 180, 200, 210, something like that. The fan will turn on. Sometimes you can even hear this at idle and the temperature will go down to about 180 or something and then it'll turn off. That's how it's supposed to work. Now, that fluid doesn't just sit there, it has to move through your engine. So somewhere you have a what is called a water pump. It doesn't pump water, it pumps antifreeze, but it's called a water pump. And that sends the fluid from the radiator into certain compartments of your engine, thus cooling off the engine. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated if you have a heater in your van and heck most of us do that fluid is also going to be sent to something called a heater core and a heater core is simply another radiator inside the vehicle and that's how your heat works you basically have two radiators one under the hood and one inside the vehicle if you have a fancy vehicle like an ambulance or with something with auxiliary heat you could have three radiators because there might be one in the back And it's the same thing. You turn on the fan, it blows over the fins, and hot air comes out. That's really all there is to it. Now, some vehicles will also cool other things, like transmissions with the radiator, or they'll add another radiator to it. In my Sprinter, the radiator is combined, where I have a combined engine and transmission cooling radiator. You might have an add-on, and you can add add add-ons as you wish. So, what problems are you likely to find here? Well, if you're overheating, that means your engine coolant temperature has gotten too hot, and your engine is in danger of becoming too hot. And if your engine overheats enough, it can do a thing called seizing. And that is when the pistons actually expand in the cylinders and will get stuck or even adhere to the cylinder walls. And this is often a fatal condition for your engine, so you absolutely do not want this to happen. If you find your engines overheating, well you need to pull over as soon as you can as soon as it's safe and if you're in an emergency situation there are a few tricks but they don't work as well as they used to because of the way modern engines are designed one thing you can do is turn on the heat inside the vehicle full blast that will turn on your second radiator and remove a lot of heat the other thing you can do is keep your engine rpms high which is counterintuitive but keeping your engine rpms high circulates the fluid faster But with electric fans, that isn't as good as it used to be. Old-fashioned fans, like in older vans, use what's called a fan clutch, which is a mechanical thing. We're getting a little too detailed here. Anyway, what does this all mean for you? Well, check your radiator fluid, make sure it's in the right place, make sure it's the right color. You don't want it to look rusty you don't want to look brown you want it to look either well it depends it could be pink it could be blue it could be green there's all different kinds of colors but find out what the proper color is for your van make sure it's at the right level i hope this gives you a general overview of how the system works and takes a little bit of the mystery out tales from the road So one of the things my wife and I like to do when we go on cruises is whale watching. And we actually had a wonderful whale watching experience just on the ship. I mean, we weren't on a separate tour. We were on Celebrity Solstice cruising up through the Inside Passage and just looking over the rails. We saw all kinds of humpback whales. There's a lot to see up there. But, you know, we wanted to get a little closer. So we took some tours. And one of the tours we took was in Ketchikan and it was on a hovercraft That's right, folks, we went whale watching on a hovercraft, mostly just to say we could go on a hovercraft. And to answer your question, was the hovercraft full of eels? I'm happy to report that it was, because I made sure that it would be because I brought a can of baby eels with me, thus sealing in the fact that my hovercraft was full of eels. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Google it. That's all. But oddly, one of the most interesting parts of this whale watch on the hovercraft, other than cruising around in the hovercraft, which is just inherently cool, was pulling up a crab pot. So the company that does this wants to do what's called citizen science, which is that they have folks who aren't scientists go out and record data so that scientists can analyze them. And they have a number of crab pots out there in the water, and they pull them up and basically record what's in there. They're looking for things like green crabs, which are an invasive species, and then sea urchins and sea stars and all that kind of a thing. Well, in ours, we found something that no one had ever seen before. We found the giant sunflower sea stars that everyone thought we would find, and we found a bunch of sculpin, which are kind of a a fish that flies in the water they don't come out of the water but they're a ground dwelling fish that has giant pectoral fins that are like wings they're also called sea robins if you remember the b-52 song rock lobster but what no one had ever seen before was a sea star eating a sculpin. <laughs> now, this, this giant sunflower sea star is it's really big. It, it weighs maybe 10 pounds, and it's the size of a large dinner plate. And it has probably 12 or 14 arms. It's not like your normal quote-unquote starfish. This thing's enormous. And we picked one up very carefully, and we were instantly slimed, because these things just discharge tons of slime. And we noticed a fish hanging out of it. And it was wiggling, the fish was still moving, but the sea star had a really tight grip on its head and was very slowly sucking it into its body. And over the course of the time we were recording all this, it sucked in more and more and more, and finally the fish gave up and resigned itself to its fate to be reincorporated into a sea star. And everybody on board was simultaneously horrified and mystified and it was an interesting moment (laughs) lots of pictures were taken and uh, i'm sorry the poor sculpin is now no more but the sea star and everything else in the basket did get thrown back and the moral of the story is well we're all just recycled dinosaur meat anyway product review So I encountered somebody recently who I had recommended something to 10 years ago, and they took my recommendation, and we're still using it, and I'm still using it, and, well, I figured I better tell you about this thing that I use all the time that just works and I don't even think about, and that is the Skinny Wallet, specifically the Big Skinny Wallet. That's what it's called. No, I'm not being sponsored by this. I know there's lots of wallet companies that sponsor people, but I've got this wallet that has lasted me 15 years now. And like it says, it is a big, skinny wallet. It is made out of this nylon material that's super, super tough. And basically, it just doesn't ever wear out. And it has a nice shape. It is a normal bifold wallet, but the edges are curved, so it easily fits in a front pocket. It's made for travelers. It also has a little plastic insert. Part for your driver's license so you can show your driver's license without having to take things out and it has a number of little pockets kind of underneath that's easy to hide stuff but the end result is that your wallet will only be very 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 slightly bigger than its contents and yet still be very sturdy and feel solid Again, folks, I've been using this wallet for 15 years. It's far longer than any other wallet I've ever owned. It wears better than leather. It doesn't fall out of my pocket very easily. It's just kind of the perfect wallet. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's just called the Big Skinny Wallet. If you're looking for a wallet that takes up a minimal amount of space and it just you're just done with your wallets wearing out, heck go get yourself a big skinny wallet and i hope you have as much luck with it as i have a place to visit this is not going to be a revelatory place to visit this is the waterfalls of the columbia river gorge about 45 minutes east of portland everybody knows about this basically if you know about western oregon in the portland area you know about these falls But having just visited there, I have some information that might be very useful for you if you're planning a trip there this summer. First off, know that the road is so crowded now that after, I think, May 21st, they're going to require a timed permit. You're not going to be able to just drive there. You're going to have to get a timed permit when you can enter the road. And now I know why. The biggest of the many, many falls, I would guess there's nine falls there, depending on how you count, The biggest of those is Multnomah Falls, and it's very, very big. It is a super impressive thing to see. You want to see it. The problem is that the parking lot holds about one-fifth the capacity they need for this to be an easy place to get to, and it's on a two-lane road. So what happens is you get close to the falls, maybe half a mile from the falls, all traffic stops, and you have to sit there and basically wait for the parking lot to turn over, and you could be sitting there an hour. It is a big problem if you have any kind of time schedule or if you are just using that road, which is Route 30, to just travel. Which, don't do that. (laughs) Route 30 is a tourist road. Don't use it for anything else. So, know that there's that timed thing coming up. You're going to have to do research on that. But also know that they have done something to make it easier to get to Multnomah Falls. And that is, don't go on Route 30 go on the interstate, which is I-84, and there's a parking area on the interstate, and they made a tunnel so you can walk from there to Multnomah Falls. Now, the problem with this is that you're only going to be able to see Multnomah Falls, but check it out here. If you're very, very clever, you can come in on one end, see all the falls, and then turn around. Yes, it's way out of the way, but it's worth it. Get on I-84, then go see Multnomah Falls that way, go back to your car, go to the end, and then come back on I-30 and see the waterfalls you didn't catch the first time. It sounds horrible, and if you look at it on a map, you're doubling the distance you have to travel, but it's not that long, and folks, you're going to spend a whole lot less time stuck in traffic. So, should you see this stuff absolutely it is some of the most beautiful stuff in the world there is no admission it's free you'll have amazing photographs lots of hiking interesting birds to see i mean yes you should go but know that because it's popular there are problems so i hope those tips will help you and i do do encourage you to go Resource recommendation. This doesn't have very much to do with vans at all, but it's an app I use all the time and it was very popular on the cruise. So I think I'll just tell you about it and you can decide whether it'd be useful to you. Have you ever seen a ship on a river or off the coast and wondered what ship that was or where it was going and all that kind of stuff? Well, there's an app for that. It's called Marine Traffic, and it taps into the AIS system, which is what ships use to broadcast where they are to other ships so, you know, they don't bump into each other, among other things. And you can access this data for free. It has an augmented reality mode where you can hold it up, hold up your phone and look through it and then kind of aim at the ship. And it'll tell you what ship it is, and maybe even able to tell you where it's coming from, where it's going to, how fast it is, when the last time it was docked, etc., etc., etc. Now, this is a professional tool, so there are lots of upgrades built in, and you may decide whether you want those or not. Like, you can find out its long-term history, you can find out ships that are too far away for the ground stations to pick up, and that they have to use satellite to track, all that kind of stuff, if you want to pay for it. One of the things I like is that if I'm near the ocean, and I really want to check out what all these ships are doing, I can get a day pass for the satellite tracking for only 99 cents, which I've done many times. They have made significant money out of me. So I'm just tossing this out there. If there are any other ship buffs out there, it's called Marine Traffic. It's a website. It's on Google. It's on iPhone. It's pretty easy to find. And uh, I really like it. I've been using it for probably 10 years. Now, one of you out there needs to come up with van traffic so we can use the same thing for vans, but I'm not going to hold my breath for that one. Q&A! Wow, we haven't had a QA and a for a while. Uh, Wander Des. Wander Des, you guys might know her. She is a fairly prominent Instagram van lifer, and you can check her out on Instagram at wander.des. She asked me a, a very interesting question, which is, if you're a full-time van lifer, And you kind of don't have a fixed address. I mean, you have an address that you use, but you don't actually live there. You're living on the road full time. What happens with tolls? And I happen to know the answer to this because something happened to me that forced the answer upon me. So tolls are getting very complicated all over the U S there's a whole bunch of different systems. Sometimes you just drive through a toll and they mail a toll to your address. Sometimes you drive through the toll and you've got easy pass or whatever. But for some reason, this pass doesn't accept that like Oklahoma doesn't accept easy Pass. There's all kinds of complexities. It's actually a giant mess. I have a whole podcast episode about what a mess it is. But if you don't live anywhere, what happens to the bills and like If you just have a P.O. box address and they mail the bill there, what happens if you don't pay it? Well, what happens is pretty severe, I found out. I had a weird situation where I was moving a car from Fort Myers, Florida to Boston, Massachusetts. And I picked up a toll pass that was in the place I was picking it up and was told to use that. What I didn't realize was that it was the toll pass only for Florida, It was not good for all the tolls all up and down the East Coast, but it was pouring rain the entire trip. I couldn't see the lights and I didn't know what the lights meant. And I, you know, I just drove. I didn't think anything of it. And then about a week after the person who owned the car sent me a message saying, I have all these incredible tolls now. And what had happened was... It had tracked the license plate and realized that I didn't have the right toll tag and sent the person who owned the car, the person who the car was registered to, a bill with a hefty fine. I think it was $800 total. Worse than that, they put a lien on the car. This was in Massachusetts. The state of Massachusetts put a lien on the title of the car, meaning that it couldn't be sold until these fines were paid yikes so i worked it out with the person i moved the car for it was my fault i basically gave up all my fees for moving the car Uh, you know it it, it, ultimately i'm the one driving the car i'm responsible it it kind of sucked for me but that's that's life so know this if you do blow off your tolls they can come back to haunt you Illinois does a thing that is particularly dangerous is that when you go through some tolls, they expect you to go onto their website and pay the toll. You're not going to get a bill. So no matter what, whether you live in a permanent address or you have a fake address that you just use for your van, you may never get the bill and then you might have a lien put on your title. It depends on great many things. So my advice is pay the tolls. Pay the tolls if you can. If you can't, try to keep track of the ones you went through and see if you can sort it out. It is a massive, massive pain, and you always have the option of setting your GPS to avoid tolls. It'll take a little bit more time, but it will also take you to a lot more interesting places. So that might be worth it. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 124. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. Now that the cruise is behind me, I will be focusing more on this podcast and the YouTube channel, and you can influence what I do. Send me a note at jeff at builtago.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And until next time, remember the words of Leo Tolstoy. Wrong does not cease to be wrong because the majority share in it.